Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 31 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today we're going to discuss three cases, two from the Illinois Supreme Court, which has been busy the last few weeks, and one from the Indiana Supreme Court. After not being busy for about two months. (laughs) Right. And it's really hard to fathom or or read into their schedule, but in any event. uh, the the, The third case is one from the Indiana Supreme Court on a question certified to it by the Seventh Circuit. Pat, on episode eight, you and I discussed certification rules, and we see these uh, happening more and more frequently, or at least as frequently as ever, so it does happen quite a bit. First case today is Sproul versus State Farm, a case that involves actual cash value and interpretations of whether depreciation of labor is allowed in making the calculations of what's due to the insured. The question was certified by the trial court in that uh, case. The second case today before the Supreme Court of Illinois is McQueen versus Green, addressing whether uh, someone can be liable for negligent training, an employer, if a jury finds that the employee was not negligent. And finally, the third case is in the matter of the certified question, Cutchin versus Robertson, Commissioner of the Indiana Part- Department of Insurance, Administrator of the Indiana Patients' Compensation Fund. We have a number of outcomes on predictions sure to go wrong as well, so let's get right to it. The Illinois Appellate Court Fifth Circuit decided Sproul versus State Farm and concluded that an average ordinary homeowner who purchased the State Farm policy at issue would have reasonably expected that depreciation would apply only to property, that is, physical structures and tangible materials, as those lose value with age, use, and wear and tear. The court further concluded that it is not reasonable to believe that an average homeowner would consider labor to be a tangible asset, included within the definition of depreciation. State Farm sought to apply a technical definition of depreciation that is not evident in the language of the policy or in the regulation upon which it relies. Courts will not adopt an interpretation which rests on fine distinctions that the average person for whom the policy is written cannot be expected to understand, and that's pretty much what verbatim from what the court, uh, the appellate court decided. This was a reasonable expectations interpretive method. And as was discussed in oral arguments, that is not the law in Illinois. Some states still use a reasonable expectations interpretive method, but that has never been the law in Illinois. The State Farm attorney noted that actual cash value was a legal term of art in Illinois. And there are some companies such as Illinois Casualty that define actual cash value. Uh, and, and as was noted in rebuttal by counsel for State Farm, some policies do expressly address depreciation of labor. At the appellant noted that seven Supreme Courts from various states have addressed the issue, and five found that you can depreciate labor, including South Carolina last week. The appellee then argued that the recent trend has been to find that the language was in favor of the insured. Counsel for appellee then asserted that if so many courts found in favor of the insured, the policy must be ambiguous. And as you wrote last week uh, on LinkedIn and uh, as pointed by the Illinois Appellate Court 2nd District and 3BC versus State Farm last year, 
and is posted by William McBisk. Ambiguity is not established merely because courts reach inconsistent results. The contrary interpretation must be reasonable, and for the reasons discussed, we conclude that it is not. Our LinkedIn friend, Laura Gregory, uh, posted on the uh, South Carolina case, Butler versus Travelers, and as she wrote, Supreme Court of uh, South Carolina answered yes to the following question. When a homeowner's policy does not define the term actual cash value, may an insurer depreciate the cost of labor in determining the actual cash value of covered loss when the estimated cost to repair or replace the damaged property includes both materials and embedded labor components. And they, they, I'm not going to go into the rest of the South Carolina decision. We'll post it with the, with the podcast. But Pat, tell us about the oral argument in this case and the tension between the regulation and the courts. Thanks, Dan. I, I want to start with the reasonable expectations test that you mentioned as, a, as an interpretive method. And, and it really is an aberration uh, of the 5th District in Illinois. Uh, as I think we've talked about previously, the 5th District is the most favorable of the districts in Illinois, uh, appellate court districts, to insureds and to plaintiffs. And this is an example of that, applying a reasonable expectations test. Um, generally, what's applied is you read the plain language and you figure out if it's susceptible to more than one reasonable interpretation. And if it is, then it's construed against the insurer who drafted the policy. Uh, and that's the test I expect the court will use to determine whether there's an ambiguity. So the question becomes, in this case, whether there's an ambiguity in the language of the policy. And because the, the policy says it's an actual cash value policy. Now, actual cash value as Dan pointed, as Dan said, is a term of art in Illinois. It has a history in the case law of over 100 years, and it's in a regulation. Uh, 50 Illinois Administrative Code 919.80D8A. So we get right down to the gra you know, granular there. It says, when a policy provides for adjustments and settlements of losses on actual cash value basis, as the policy in this case did, on a residential fire and extended coverage, the company shall determine actual cash value, except for instances in which the insured's interest is limited as set forth in 8D8B as follows. Replacement cost of property at the time of loss, less depreciation, period. So the question becomes, do you depreciate both the materials as well as the labor? If they wanted to put comma, except for labor, they could have done that. They didn't do that. It's the actual so replacement cost is... So replacement cost but it, coverage, but it, but it does say replacement cost of property, and as we talked about before the show, regular accounting you don't normally depreciate labor unless you know it, it's built into the product that that's being depreciated, right? The well, and I, and I think that was things. a point that yeah. Council for State Farm made is that that yep. shingle isn't going to get on the roof by itself, right? You know that that wall isn't going to get painted absent somebody going over and painting it. Yeah. Um, What's so, interesting also in the arguments that, that was raised is that the only thing depreciated by State Farm was the painting. Right. Well, which they would argue, well, that's just charity. That's us being nice. We, you know, we're still allowed to depreciate it. Um, the, but replacement cost is, so I, I think you have to look at what is replacement cost. Replacement cost includes the labor. It's all of the things to put you back. It's one of the rare coverages if you have a replacement cost policy. It's one of the rare coverages that puts you back in a better position than you were in before the the incident occurred, the hailstorm, the right. tornado, the fire, the whatever. So replacement cost policies are you get all the money to put you back that building back where it was even better 
on the date of the loss. You get that money up front, fine. You pay more premium for that, but that's what you get. Actual cash value is you get that amount, but you take out the depreciation. And once you complete the repairs, or in State Farm, apparently once you start the repairs, they give you the check for the difference. So the insured has to finance the difference between those things. They can use a home equity loan. They can use a separate loan. They can use savings that they have, whatever it happens to be. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about how ACV policies aren't aren't as common. They're generally tar they're generally uh, at targeted at poor people. They oftentimes are people with mortgages. So there's going to be a mortgagee on the check. These kinds of things. But the the bottom line though is is that replacement cost necessarily involves labor. So you can't have labor on one part of the equation and not on the other side of the equation. Um, because as I said, the shingle ain't going to get on the roof by itself. Someone's going to have to hop up there, get a hammer, get a nail, and attach that shingle to the roof. Um, and so the uh, that's the that's the issue that they're struggling with. But as Dan said, you know, there's this tension between what's in the regulation, which is it uh, it says this is how you shall do it. You shall do it this way. So even if they wrote something contrary to this, they couldn't do it. And if they, um, now they pointed out, well, there's some companies, as Dan said, that do define this. Okay. But, and they made clear, the appellee, the appellee made clear, hey, we're not arguing that you can't include uh, labor here. We're just saying because you didn't, you can't depreciate for it. But here it is. I mean, if it's, if it's, it, it really is this tension between what the courts are up to and what the regulation says, because the regulation must include. Uh, that's the regulation must include labor. The there also was a discussion about um, the broad evidence rule and how that it doesn't apply in Illinois and how if it does uh, that or it, given that it doesn't that this favors the uh, the insured. The broad evidence rule outlines guidelines that insurers must go about in determining the value of lost, stolen, or damaged property. It does not specify any one method or value in any one piece of property, only that the method which most accurately represents the true cash value of the property must be used. That doesn't sound anything like the regulation. It doesn't sound anything like the the uh, the case law. That's not how it's done in Illinois. Um, so it's, it's really kind of foreign what the 5th District did. As often happens, they do things that just yep. are outside of the way the way the way things are done, um, especially to the detriment of insurers. Uh, so I th this is this is a case where, like the Hoggy versus Zavala case we talked about on the last um, podcast with regards to State Farm before the Illinois Supreme Court, uh, you have a situation where the regulations seem to say one thing and the law seems to be going a different direction and the court's got to figure out how how to do that and if they decide the regulation doesn't apply or, or what have you it puts may put the insurer in a bit of a whipsaw which i mo no, imagine most people aren't very going to be very sympathetic to but they're in a whipsaw nonetheless which may make may give dan and i some business so we're not going to complain about that too much we're not going to complain and uh you know the the the, the supreme court did seem to struggle with this on both uh, both advocates because it's it's very nuanced I think and again Illinois is different than Kentucky and some Tennessee and South Carolina and some other states and so I I, th I thought counsel for appellate appellant rather did a very good job of distinguishing the the quote trend 
that the counsel for Apple articulated by saying, well, hold it now. That 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 history is a little deceiving because at the time that the Tennessee court ruled as they did and you said they had such a regulation like Illinois did, it didn't actually apply. Right. It had been enacted but didn't apply retroactively. So maybe not so much about that. Uh, so he was able to attack that a little bit. Yeah. And I, I thought that was I thought that was pretty effective on rebuttal. I do, I do too. And I think, you know, we've talked about some some effective rebuttals in recent weeks. I thought it was a a pretty good rebuttal to say, you know, he gave you a timeline. The other opposing counsel gave this timeline, and and here's why it's bunk, right? And here's this state. This is why this doesn't apply, and it's not really that timeline is not, you know, they talked about a wave. They talked about a wave, and and yet here's the actual timeline. There's, you know, there was a dissent in in. in yeah, this, West, there's a in, case in <laughs> 2002 from Oklahoma that found in favor of the insurer, and there was a dissent, and the right. Arkansas court. Supreme Court in 2013 or something relied on the dissent. And it's right. like, we're supposed to discern what an Oklahoma Supreme Court dissent was is going to be the law in Illinois 12 <laughs> yeah. uh, 15 years later. What now? I, I don't think we, as you said, I don't think we count noses of justices. We look at outcomes and it, we won. What are you right. talking about? Right. <laughs> we don't we figure won. out how, how narrowly we won. Look at, did we win? Right, and we want to make changes if we won. It's yeah. ludicrous. What we, what would be the point? Right. So, so with that, I think uh, um, we'll we'll take our first break and come back with another Illinois Supreme Court case, McQueen versus Green. It's always nice when the cases rhyme. We're back for segment two of episode 31 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're talking about McQueen versus Green. So this is a case, I want to get the facts out there very quickly. It's a trucking accident. Levanta Green is driving a truck for Pan-Oceanic Company. He picks up a bobcat from Patton. Patton attaches the, quote, attaches the bobcat to the tractor, to the trailer, which seems to have been a flatbed trailer. Green gets on the road. Green didn't attach it. He doesn't know how to attach it. He, that's not his job. His job is to drive the truck. He drives the truck. While he's driving, he realizes, you know, something's not right back here. The, the load is crooked, this and that. The, the, his employer says, go back. Keep driving it, but go back. During the process of going back, the load comes loose uh, he hits the brakes. That makes the situation worse. And Mr. McQueen suffers injury because of this. Mr. McQueen, there's no allegation that McQueen did anything wrong. Right. So the case goes to trial against Green directly, his employer, Pan Oceanic, on a, uh, on a respondeat superior theory. And we'll talk about what that means. And But Patton had settled and got a good faith finding. So they're nowhere to be found. Verdict comes back, Green, not guilty. No negligence by Green. They find that Paneoceanic, guilty for failure to train. And then they hit him with a million dollars in punitive damages. <laughs> Case gets appealed. The appellate court says, uh, no, that's not a thing because their liability for respondeat superior is 
derivative. So if the under if the plane if the def, their employee Green wasn't liable, there's no way that Panoceanic could be liable. And they also reversed on the basis that there was a failure to give the burden of proof instruction, which the court said was an instruction so fundamental that in the absence of that, even though the defense counsel mentioned it in his closing, it's the absence of it is per se error and you can't get a fair trial under those circumstances. And so they reversed. This appeal comes up and the argument essentially is that there's some sport of different species of respondeat superior between negligent retention, hiring, entrustment, and supervision on one hand, and training, because it's something else. And, and not only I, not only a separate branch responded superior, but it's a it's a separate direct action of sorts, which is bizarre. It is very bizarre. So to help us kind of situate this, I'm going to play a portion of the oral argument where counsel for the appellant was trying to explain this, and let's just say Justice Tice was a little confused. Dan, I'm having trouble here. I'm going to get this right. Bear with me. Not an issue. Hiring negligent and retention, negligent entrustment have in some instances been called direct torts. And I think that created some of the confusion. They're not. In all of those instances, they require that the employee be, be in fact, be at fault. And if the employer is at fault, I'm sorry, if the employee is at fault, then the employer is at fault. That was the distinction that the Ferrer court uh, uh, drew a court, a case that the appellate court relied upon. In this instance, the the employer's fault, uh, and the employer is in fact at fault, and its fault's not related to the employee's conduct, in the sense that, and just what I said, I think provided some of the confusion below. The employer's the employer's fault is related to the employee's conduct but the employer's fault is not related to employee fault. And that's the distinction, the critical dis distinction between the two types of fault. You're going to have to help me on that one. So, so Dan, I, I, I agree. Uh, I have no idea what counsel for the appellant is talking about. And it didn't seem that at least one of the justices understood what he was talking about either. Um, this idea that somehow you could have a derivative claim that isn't derivative and yet it's a special, it's like a special species yeah. of claim. And the, so there's tons of issues here, policy wrapped up all in it. Dan, why don't you tell us more about the oral argument? Thanks, Pat. And as you play it, I, I think that, that, uh, uh, interaction with, with Justice Tice kind of summarizes what that the entire argument is as we listen to it and sometimes and you get sometimes you get lucky and you can boil it down to one statement from the advocate or one statement from the justices right one of the justices and just go here's his argument and here's the the, the response which was quizzical and, and and as pat said responding superior is latin for let the master answer and it's it's a doctrine that a party is responsible for the acts of their agents and in the employment situation an employer can be liable for the acts of the employees performed within the scope of their employment. And so and that's kind of the and, and what's important is, is that once it's admitted, as it was here, it's strict liability. It doesn't, yep. it, it's there on the, for whatever the employee came up with, 
they're strictly liable once they admit that he was their employee. That's why there's oftentimes fights about these things. Right. This would take this outside of that context and really turn the law on its head. Right. And and, and there's also, uh, it's, it's important to note that there's a distinction between but for cause and legal cause. And I was critical in this case. Clearly, as you mentioned, Pat, the driver was the but for cause, but he was not the legal cause. There was once no finding. Once you break that out a little bit, sure, what that would sure. mean in this context. Sure. So legal cause is a cause that produces a result in a natural and probable sequence and without which the result would not have occurred. Legal cause involves examining foreseeability of consequences and whether a defendant should be held legally responsible for such consequences. And as you mentioned here, I mean, the driver looked in his in his mirrors and saw that this load was crooked and uh, called, the, called the employer, but did not know how to attach the load. Uh, didn't know that uh, putting your your foot on the brakes was he had a bad not idea. been trained not to been know trained. of the problem. That right. was a, he was just ignorant. Therefore, it was right. unforeseeable to him. Therefore, he couldn't have no, been the legal cause. That was the claim. Yeah, and and, and uh, Michael Rasek was the the appellant uh, advocate discussed the, the distinction uh, at at great length. And and w- at one point there was a question from one of the justices. I don't remember who. Uh, I'm not going to look in my notes right now to see, but. They asked, "Is it possible this was just an accident and nobody's at fault? There are things that accidents." Well, that was happen. no. That was that. That was counsel for Appley who okay. said, "This yeah. is this yeah. is just this is just an accident." And then one of the justices says, "Well, didn't they hold Patton responsible?" Right. That's what I mean. That's essentially what they did. To which Rassak responded, "I got a two issue, I got a two issue rule issue." Right. Which brings us back to our friend, the special interrogatory. And I'm sorry, right. I keep because it, it just it, these it all came relate. Up again. And, and there was no special interrogatory there, in here, right? And so his argument is, is in the absence of a special interrogatory, we don't know what the jury was thinking, although he seems to be taking a lot of liberties with what he thinks the jury is thinking. Um, and so as a consequence, he gets to, he, he wins, it's, it's heads, they, heads they lose, tails I win. That's essentially his argument yeah. on, that, on that particular point. Yeah. And one of the questions, as you mentioned as well, was there's a failure to give the burden of, of proof instruction. Uh, the defendant didn't offer it, and whether that's reversible error. Uh, but but the justices here were really struggling with proximate cause, you know, the Paul's graph type of situation that we talked about in in, in past episodes, and, and training uh, versus negligent hiring, supervision, and entrustment. Again, when when uh, uh, Rasak was asked about uh, negligent entrustment, uh, supervision. Uh, and hiring, negligent hiring is the thing where where somebody hires somebody, and they they should have looked into their background or or circumstances. Uh, not applicable here, right? Because again, there's there's no evidence that the the driver didn't know how to drive the truck. I mean, so that that's not it here. Negligent entrustment is is permitting one of your employees to do something, uh, and you shouldn't have, right? You gave them, you know, you you, you had somebody doing. Uh, uh, something they don't have a driver's license, and you you send them out. Or he was drunk or something. And drunk, and then negative uh, negligent supervision uh, has to do with supervising. And so the, the justices are really struggling again here with this negligent training and this distinction, this kind of fine cutting of of, of the uh, duties, because all uh, uh, all of the briefs, uh, the expert testimony, uh, all of the case law. Uh, everything that that was cited to, everything uh, looks at these three uh, negligent hiring, supervision, and entrustment, and 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 everything according to the appellee and some of the justices were asking too, 
why isn't negligent training part of supervision entrustment and and the, the whole whole bag of of these uh, negligent responding theory uh, uh, superior theories um, there, there were big issues of duty here again it's 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 a it seems to be a hard path to say that the employee uh, was found not to be the proximate cause and not responsible for the accident that occurred and yet somehow that this this uh, training or failure to train the person would result in in the employer uh, being sacked with a million dollars in, in punitive damages one of the the case that you heard in that that clip that pat played uh the appellant cited to fairer uh and that's a colorado supreme court case that had a scenario kind of like this here or at least that was their kind of uh dicta they, they come up with they came up with this kind of truck driving type of situation it wasn't a truck driving case in Ferrar, and, and they used that um again the, the uh, interesting case it's it's uh it's, it seems like the appellant here has an uphill battle uh but it, as noted as well the burden of proof jury instruction was not given and some justices had concerns with that uh they they referred to it uh one of the justices is such a fundamental instruction uh, which it is, right? I mean, a burden of proof, and why? Why the defense didn't? And, and uh, how is operate? it that they, the the best argument that a appellant came up with is well, counsel for the defendant at the at closing argument said three times who had the burden of proof is well, no, no, hold it. The judge just got done telling them that the the lawyers' statements are argument; they're not evidence. Right? And I inst and I instruct you on the law. So the the jurors took the instruction seriously. They wouldn't have looked to counsel for the defendant. To get instruct them on what the law is, the law comes from the comes from the bench in the jury instructions, and it wasn't in there. The judge has got to be got to got to look. I mean, it, mistakes happen, but right. this is this is an instruction in the absence of which you really got a problem. I mean, we we have repeatedly on this show, over and over again, it seems to be a theme. Talk about lawyers on either side. You have to preserve your record and do in accordance with the rules. And that, uh, that seems like such a far-fetched basis because then if anything's said during the trial or, or if, a, if one advocate repeatedly says buzzwords or, or says something, does that make mean that the jury then will go into the jury room and remember, hey, you know, uh, a plaintiff's counsel kept saying the burden of proof was, you know, that, that he gets a home run victory, $8 billion. Where's, yeah. We don't have an instruction, but ah, the heck with it. We're just going to go ahead and make our decisions based on what we deem is important from the days and days of trial. It seems like a far-fetched uh, uh I want argument. to talk about the jury instruction as well. We mentioned yeah. the special interrogatory, and then we mentioned, you know, they, the, one of the justices speculated, well, they must have put it on Patton. Now, Patton, as a party who settled and got a good faith finding, was nowhere to be found, I can guarantee you, on the jury instruction. Right. Under a case called United versus uh, uh, under Godecki. It's an Illinois Supreme Court case that held that under 211.17 of the Code of Civil Procedure, you don't put settled and dismissed parties on the verdict form. So they had no opportunity to assess fault as to Patton. That is wholly unfair, entirely incorrect, and is a disaster area. Yeah. I've written about this uh, in a couple columns in uh, last spring with Dave Levitt of, of Hinshaw and Culbertson about that issue and why this is such an, such an issue. And here it is. You don't know if that's what the jury did. Now, maybe that is what the jury did. That you know, as it was suggested by counsel for appellant or appellee, 
you know, maybe they they blame them for you know, what what would happen if you didn't have this negligent training theory. Where would their recovery be? Well, could have been a product's liability claim if the chain broke right. improperly and shouldn't have, or a claim against directly against Pat because they're the ones that attach the dog. It's not like he doesn't have any claim. It just isn't against these defendants. And it, and, and, and it does seem to be the case in this case. There was some some uh, discussion that there was some kind of clasp or something that was perhaps it faulty. Broke broken and, and so that could have caused the accident and and it, it's po it's it's also possible there just was an accident where right. in order for there to be fault there has to be a duty and a breach and a causation and a damage and the problem here is is that the employer is only liable they pled it and one of the important things to point out here is this the the complaint was pled not with a separate count for negligent training the count was pled respondeat superior and entrustment, supervision, training, all of it was in one count. In one they count. didn't split it out. And the issues instruction tendered by the by the plaintiff, objected to by the defendant, had them all in one place, not a separate theory. Right. So when did they conjure this theory of this separate negligent training? And when did it, uh, uh, you know, when did this come up? So I, 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 if it's not in your pleading, which frames the issue, and it's not in the issues instruction that frames the issues for the jury, where is it? It seems like it it's really just a doesn't shoehorn, make any sense. It's a shoehorn attempt to save the save the verdict. I, I think so. And with that, we'll take our next break and come back with segment three. We we have a lot of ground to cover, Dan. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We are back for segment three of episode 31. And as Pat mentioned, we have a, a packed... Uh, amount of things to cover in, in segment three. The next case is in read the certified question of Cutchin versus Robertson. The Seventh Circuit certified two questions to the Indiana Supreme Court. And the underlying facts in this case is Jeffrey Cutchin filed a proposed medical malpractice complaint with the Indiana Department of Insurance against a physician who had prescribed medications to the driver of a vehicle involved in an accident that killed Cutchin's wife and daughter. Cutchin reached a settlement with the physician and medical clinic for $250,000, the maximum liability under the Indiana Medical Malpractice Act. And then Cutchin filed a petition in federal district court seeking excess damages from the Indiana Patients' Compensation Fund. The United States District Court for the Southern District of Indiana entered summary judgment for the fund. On Cutchin's appeal, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit certified two questions to the Indiana Supreme Court. The first was whether Indiana's Medical Malpractice Act prohibits the patient's compensation fund from contesting the act's applicability to a claim after the claimant concludes a court-approved settlement with a covered health care provider. And the second question was whether Indiana's Medical Malpractice Act applies to claims brought against qualified health care providers for individuals who did not receive medical care from the provider but who are injured as a result of the provider's negligence and providing medical treatment to someone else. And in this case, the, the Indiana Supreme Court has accepted the certified questions. Pat, Pat tell us about 
oral argument in the Indiana Medical uh, Malpractice Act and how it functions, which is different than some other jurisdictions. Thanks, Dan. The Indiana Medical Malpractice Act is a robust scheme for protecting doctors. Um, the limits have recently been raised, but at the time of this accident, the primary, in or, if a doctor was what's called a qualified health care provider, they're able to take advantage of the scheme. And that means they have a $250,000 primary policy. And then there's the ability to get another million dollars from the patient's compensation fund. So the way this works is they file a proposed complaint with the Department of Insurance. They assemble a review panel. They, while that review panel is figuring out if the person, uh, if the doctor was, uh, was at fault or not, they can file a lawsuit. That lawsuit is then stayed. That lawsuit neither identifies the doctor. So you'll see cases get captioned anonymous doctor A, anonymous hospital B, this kind of a thing. And that, that preserves the statute. And then they proceed through the panel process. And the fund gets notice anytime one of the carriers uh, sets a reserve at $125,000 or more on a particular case. So they have notice of what's going on. So wh what happens is, is if this one of these cases settles or if there's a judgment uh, for, the, um, for the policy limit, the $250,000, then they can go get the excess, what's called excess damages from the fund. So what happened in this case was they settled the 250. Uh, the doctor in the clinic did for with the family of the deceased, the deceased passengers and driver of the other vehicle. As it turned out, the patient didn't actually sue. Right. Her family, Watson, didn't sue. It was Cutchin and Cutchin as father of a child and and wife and husband of the wife who sued, and they got the 250. So then the fund came in and says, oh, no, we don't owe the 250 to you or we don't owe the million to you because you're not patients under the act. And so the first question is, can they even rate? Can they can they uh, can they raise that issue? And then the, and then the question is then the other question is the scope of of the act. Does it because it uses the terms patient and claimant and claim all kind of interchangeably throughout. It's a bit, a bit sloppy. Um, I'm going to play a portion of the argument where the scope. This really addresses the second question, which is frankly the more interesting question from a policy perspective, um, and, and try to give an idea of uh, of what we're dealing with here. If a plaintiff and a qualified provider enter into a settlement, there is no provision, and, and the settlement is paid. All of the policy limits are paid. There is no provision in the act for them to raise the defense to which but, your but question that, refers. That response presupposes that the plaintiff that settles is indeed a patient. What if it's not a patient? Uh, well, that cuts to the definition of patient. And but, any but that's person, question two. Exactly. And any person who's, who asserts uh, liability approximately caused by a covered provider's rendering of curative or salutary care has a claim under the act. In fact, must file it under the act. That's the whole reason the act exists, to cap those damages. As Amicus has pointed out, as any, I think, reasonable person would agree, part the, the purpose of the act is to cap damages for medical malpractice. It is not the identity of the claimant that should control coverage. It is whether or not the claim 
is for medical malpractice. The identity of the claimant could not be more broadly defined under the black letter language of this act, but, which but, is yeah, I have some questions with that. Let's talk about patient and how broad it goes. Let's just change the fact pattern slightly. What if in the case, Kuchin was so distraught over the deaths of his wife and child that he injured, that he shot someone? And let's say the victim settled with the doctor and prescribed Watson the narcotics. What recourse does the fund have if we construe the definition of patient very broadly? When does it end? Exactly, Dan. When does it end? Right. Um, and I started playing that long clip. That kind of gives you the idea of the interaction between the two questions you heard, I believe, was Justice Slaughter and then uh, the Chief Justice uh, in the follow-up question as right. to when when does this end? How far does this go? How much are you going to be exposing the fund to essentially unlimited liability? And just to make the plot, thicken the plot a little bit. It became apparent during the argument that an amicus brief had been filed in favor of the appellants in this case. The doctors supported the plaintiff, right. saying they want this coverage, uh, which potentially jeopardizes the health of the plan. The plan argued, if we have to start monitoring all these things, we're going to have to staff up. And one of the things that was supposed to happen when they passed this Medical Malpractice Act in the 70s, and it... It's been challenged several times. Its constitutionality has been challenged several times. None of those have been successful. One of the things that they that's um, its purpose was try to we're going to reduce the, the number of claims that have been brought. Well, I, I posted about this today on LinkedIn, and they cited that there's about 800 of these cases brought in Indiana per year. There's about six million, just over six million residents in Indiana. There's just over five million residents in Cook County, and guess how many medical cases are filed in Illinois where the, in Cook County? every year where there are no caps, about 800. Right. Uh, maybe it has more to do with population than it does with all the caps. And and, and, and irrespective of uh, how many caps you put on it, people are still going to sue or doctors are still going to mess up. It's not going to, it's not going to have anything to really have the effect that they're looking for. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a policy question of really crazy dimensions. I mean, I don't understand how this case would come out in Illinois. In Illinois, if you had the same circumstance, could that person really sue? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. I, I, I really, that seems too attenuated to me. Um, yeah. I, I don't know uh, if there's such a case like that, but it seems very attenuated, as the Chief Justice's question suggested. Yeah, the, the, only, the only thing I would say is, is on rebuttal, again, I th thought it was a pretty effective rebuttal. They mentioned 800 cases and uh, uh, immediate notice. They did say that there was no case uh, that could be found that supports uh, their, the ability of the fund to challenge liability after settlement. And they made a big deal out of liability of the doctor being coextensive with the liability of the fund and all defenses common to the doctor and fund were common. And so once, once the panel and the, and the settlement takes place, they, you know, they're trying to suggest, right, that you can't, that the fund can't then try to unwind what was decided. But to, to your point, uh, you know, it it, it, it it seems open the door for just there, there's no end to it. Right. Anybody could sue for medical malpractice because somehow, you know, God forbid that, you know, somebody had some, uh, 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 you know, we, we did the case on the, the, the uh, abortion thing, you know. Right. So, so there you could find some kind of tangential right relate back to almost anything and say, well, because of this, that that and it seems to be a. Uh, proximate cause issue here, but 
It, it really does. And, and I, so if the, yeah, if the doctor concedes liability just because it's going to cost more to defend the case, right. then that leaves the fund on the hook and the, and the fund has to intervene early on and spend a bunch of resources intervening. I mean, it was plain that counsel for the fund, it, this is something he's done for quite a while. He's litigated these cases right. for a long time. This is who he represents. This is his job, uh, either directly with the fund um, or assigned there by the uh, Indiana Department or uh, Indiana Attorney General's office. I couldn't tell which who his exact employer is, but yep. he's done these cases for a very long time. And their job is to try to protect the assets of the fund. Right. And uh, it seems the people on whose behalf they're protecting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was very happy to see that their protection grow. And one of the issues they raised is an insurance coverage issue yep. is because then it could trigger coverage or there could be issues. If it's not covered under medical malpractice, then it may trigger issues under their CGL policies and CGL policies have exclusions for professional services. Right. But the question becomes, are these really professional services? It's certainly right. arising out of professional services, which would exclude them, which would leave the doctors bare. That may be where the doctors are coming from. Uh, that was the suggestion. That might be. Um, so this is a, a, it's a, it's a, we haven't really gotten into the textual issues and some of the history of this because it's really, really in the weeds. But just from a policy perspective, it's, uh, and that's really, that's what seems to be driving what many of the justices were asking about is the policy implications here, as opposed to the textual answer. They may let the text, they may let the policy decide the answer and let the text, the textualism uh, fill in the blanks. To help them get there. Uh, that sure. seems to be kind of how it may go. Um, with that, we'll turn to our uh, prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Yeah, we're, we uh, we had six decisions this week. We're 20, 25, 2, and 3. We are, but let's t- let's uh, predict on Sproul first. Oh, you want to do predictions first? Yeah, okay. let's do predictions first. What do you think on Sproul? I, I, I think reversed. I think, I, 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 I think, I think the carriers win. I, I think so, but I think it's going to be a close case. I don't think it's going to oh, be. Oh, I didn't say anything yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> just be, just because I, I do think here it's, it's one of those cases, again, where State Farm may not have the best. Their policies may not be as, as strong as like an Illinois casualty. Again, we have a situation where it's, you know, the, the regs and, and things probably need clarity. And, uh, but but I, I think it's a reversal as well. And then we come to McQueen. I think that's an affirm. Uh, there, I think they're going to affirm the appellate court. Yeah, I don't think they're going to extend this uh, negligent training uh, in the independent tort. And then Cutchin, I, I think the plaintiff wins. I, I think they're going. I think that the text. I, I think that. I don't think it has to go that far in order to get in order to get here. There's other mechanisms to try to cut this off. Um, and if the fund has to get involved, it has to get involved. Too bad. I agree. Um, okay, so that brings us to last week where we you, you mentioned we did we did well. Yeah. Um, so uh, what? Why don't we we had we had four cases all from the second district that dealt with uh, lawyers, and this was right. a, on on episodes. Pardon me, twenty four 24. and twenty and twenty seven, where we talked about. Uh, where we had the lawyer pinata, Camelot versus Burke Burns, Crow versus Teradash, and Brunning versus uh, Eversman. And uh, in Camelot, this was the fund. This was the fee case where twenty percent right. of a sale means twenty percent of a sale. Right. And the the <laughs> although if they hadn't let in the parole evidence, they might have won. 
They might have. There was parole evidence as to what 20% meant, and it, and it meant sale, and they hadn't been sold, so you don't get the 20%. Uh, so the law firm lost there. The lawyers did better. We got that one right. We did. Uh, we said there would be an affirmance, and then Crow. All these, all these three were. We said were going to be affirmances, and they were. Crow versus Teradash was a workers' compensation case. Um, and Dan, uh, why don't you tell us about this one? Uh, this my, is this is, is a really this is really a um, this is a case about whether. Oh, this was the case where the, he was told to settle. It was the best he was going to do. Right. And and uh, they argued they, they argued they, that they would have had a better day somehow. Exactly. And, uh, and, courts and uh, and, and well, what, what's really important about this case is that it's a case where they say, uh, you you do you have a fiduciary duty to tell the plaintiff tell this person that you had a problem in order to extend the statute of limitations for the fraudulent consumer. If you remember, this is a case where they didn't right. they write the letter and they don't file suit for like 30 months, two and a right. half years. Right. So, and there was still time left on the original statute and they try to say, well, you sh you had a fiduciary duty to tell me you had a problem. And the court goes, uh, no. Uh, right. And then that brings us to Brunning and Associates versus Eversman, which is really a legal malpractice case uh, masquerade, or it's actually a summary judgment case masquerading as a, as a legal malpractice case because it's really about how the plaintiff didn't file a 191B affidavit, ask for, uh, actually show what his he would have pled in order to show that there was a duty to do what they said the lawyer had a duty to do to go get an expert. Well, you don't have, we didn't have to right. get experts yet. Summary judgment motion was filed. You had to go get an expert if that was your means of challenging the motion for summary right. judgment. Or, or at least make some statements of what somebody would have said, right? And th there was none of that here. That's right. And then that brings us to Kramer versus Ruiz. Um, why don't you tell us about Kramer versus Ruiz, which was a case we talked about on the very first episode of this podcast. Yeah, which is hard to believe. And it's hard to even remember when I when I saw we'd, we'd gotten this wrong. Uh, the, the, the Fifth District affirmed the dismissal of the plaintiff's case under Rule 103B. As Pat mentioned, we, we did this on episode one of the podcast in early January. You did correctly predict, Pat, that if there was an affirmance, there would be a dissent based on the arguments here. That doesn't count, though, for the record, though, unfortunately. But, but uh, in this case, plaintiff Mark Kramer, who was personal representative of the estate of Stephen Green, deceased, filed a complaint in the Circuit Court of Madison County for wrongful death against the defendant, Gabriel Ruiz. Uh, the, the defendant was served with an alias summons. He filed a motion to dismiss the complaint and asserting that the plaintiff failed to exercise reasonable diligence in effectuating the service on the defendant. And this was a case where, uh, for, for whatever reason, the case was filed. And, and then for a long period of time, the 30 months, there was no effort, even though they had it was identity. Eight, it, was eight, it was eight months. Eight months. Eight, eight, was, eight months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She got sick, and then they, she didn't That's realize right. that the— she didn't realize that the summons was going to come back electronically. And then one, they found him within a week of getting the summons. And there was an eight-month delay in yeah. serving him. And by that time, the statute had run, which meant the dismissal under 103B was with prejudice. And right. we thought we I didn't think in a million years the, first, the Fifth District of all courts was going to uphold that. But they did. And Justice Cates uh, uh, dissented, uh, right. as predicted. Right. Uh, right. And and it, was, it is surprising for the Fifth District. But... Uh, you know, some, sometimes cases are so uh, clear from the from the uh, you know appellate panel, right? That they can't, you know, they, they can't invent 
uh, new rules in, in this case. Uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, attorney got sick and stuff, but the eight months uh, just, you know. It's too long. It's too long. Yep. So so that, that was Kramer. And then we also predicted the Supreme Court would in BPPLC versus Mayor and City Council of Baltimore. Uh, reversed the fourth circuit circuit it did and held that the lower court erred in holding holding that it lacked jurisdiction to consider all the defendants grounds for removal under 1447 d this was an environmental case but it was procedural only it was it had to do with climate change and uh, uh but solely on on uh procedure Th this case is going to be seen in the federal court again the it supreme is. court's gonna i'm sorry the supreme court's gonna see this case again it will. Um, I, I would expect, but this was purely a procedural, textual decision. I believe it was unanimous, or maybe there was one dissent by Sotomayor, but it was very yeah. much a textual yeah. exposition of what does 1447 say, and can you review all of the reasons for removal in, in an appeal, and the court held that you could. Right. Um, so it really didn't touch on the very, very broad... Uh, policy issues, foreign policy and administrative law that, that apply here. Um, which brings us to the last case, Dan. Yeah. Corey versus New, which is out of these is the most important of the group. It is. Because it is, if this rule had been affirmed, it would change the way lawyers practice law in Illinois because it would have imposed a fiduciary duty on all lawyers vis-a-vis -vis all clients of the firm, even if the lawyer had never met the client which you can imagine in firms that have <laughs> dozens of lawyers like my firm or hundreds of lawyers like Dan's, that would be a mess uh, to impose mess. such individual liability in that fashion. Um, if you recall, this is the case where the husband and wife team had a law firm. The wife owned the firm, but the husband was the president. The wife is alleged to have stolen client, client funds from the trust fund and, uh, the husband got sued directly for breach of fiduciary duty, and the court said, nope, he doesn't have a fiduciary, or the trial court held he did have a fiduciary duty given all the circumstances, and the trial and the appellate court said no, and they went the extra mile in this case. They not only reversed summary judgment, they granted summary judgment in favor of the lawyer. They were very certain about this, and this is the same panel that heard those other three legal malpractice right. cases at the second district. So just, this is Justices Zenoff, Bridges, and Burkett, um, who took turns writing the writing the column, and this just might these four cases just might be uh, the topic of my next column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this week. Uh, got done writing about them this morning. Uh, excellent, excellent. And so, yeah, these are really important cases. We've got as uh, we've got a number to go, but five and one is not a bad week, Dan. No, and, and you know, with this being episode thirty-one, a few were specials, three three cases per. We probably have. I would I would guesstimate. I haven't gone back and and tallied it up, but we probably have 50 decisions that will be coming over the summer and you know probably in the summer months that uh, we'll see how our record stands up. But uh, yeah. we got a good good start. We do, and that brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure, we're going to talk about a rule uh, that came up recently in the Palos versus Humana case that was decided by the Illinois Supreme Court last week. And, and somehow the, we didn't talk about this on the podcast, and neither of us can remember why. Yeah, it, it either was a very busy week or it just somehow fell below the radar for some reason. And this is the right to change judges, uh, which is a procedural protection for civil litigants in Illinois. Uh, the Illinois Supreme Court in, in Palo strengthened their right in finding that the testing the waters doctrine 
was an exception not based on the text and abolished it. The result of this decision is that all orders entered by the trial court after April 20th, 2017 are void as the court did not have jurisdiction once it erroneously denied the motion. Uh, the, the rule now reverts to a right to change judge so long as the judge has not made a substantive ruling in the case and the hearing has not started. The court did state that even without the test, the Waters Doctrine, the trial court may rely on its inherent authority to enter any orders necessary to a, prevent abuse or manipulation of the system. And as you know, Pat and, and all litigants know, the, the right to change judges is, is something that happens uh, typically very early in a case. Most law firms of more than one person will either circulate internally. Does anybody know Judge Smith or Judge Jones or whoever the judge is? And if you don't, you may oftentimes go to colleagues that have been before them or your friends and say, does anybody know about so this is someone so, I want to stay right, in front of on this right, case. Right. And again, we've talked about some judges bring their experiences. There are judges that are pro-plaintiff, pro-defendant, um, or or have no knowledge in a particular area. And so there are uh, very good uh, substantive reasons for lawyers to make these changes. And the court, again, uh, strengthened that right uh, for lawyers to be able to make that uh, thing. And again, it's the, the it's before the substantive ruling, and the reason for that is you don't want to have a, a, a situation where the uh, reality is is that some judge rules against you on a summary judgment motion, and all of a sudden you, you want a new judge, right? Because you feel you've been had or or whatever. It's a little too late at that point. There's too much invested, and you can't. You know, it's, it really would be the ultimate forum shopping if you could at any time you know, say, well, I don't like this judge anymore. This this rule that Illinois has is amongst the most generous of that was possible, conceivable, and I think amongst the most generous anywhere in the country. So I think it is, yeah. It, it does, you can, you get one for, for no cause, uh, because motions for cause are extraordinarily difficult to win. Right. Um, uh, you don't want to file, you don't want to file those. No. Um, so uh, with that, Dan, um, we've, uh, we've come to the end of a lot, a lot of cases we've discussed. Uh, and we're getting ready for next week, uh, Memorial Day. We'll get a uh, we'll get a podcast out for Memorial Day, and we've already uh, set up an interview that may be part of that podcast, uh, or we may do it as a standalone episode. But uh, look forward to at least one podcast next week on the usual on usually uh, as usually released on Sunday. For Dan, this is Pat. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own 
and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.